Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 4. Lizzie Borden sat in her Taunton jail cell for nine long months. Although suspicion had been against her in the days leading up to her arrest, eventually the public tide turned in her favor. The elite of Fall River did not want to believe it possible that one of their own could have committed such a grisly crime. A woman who taught Christian Sunday school to Chinese immigrants and was active in charity work, a daughter of one of Fall River's oldest and most respected families, could never be a murderess. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, to which Lizzie belonged, released a statement assuring, quote, our unshaken faith in her as a fellow worker and sister, tenderly beloved. Both Emma and Lizzie Borden were rich now, and Lizzie hired the best defense team her money could buy. Besides family lawyer Andrew Jennings, she hired as her chief defense lawyer a flamboyantly brilliant man named George Robinson. Robinson was a former governor, and in an added twist of luck, during this time as governor he had appointed a man named Justin Dewey to the bench. Judge Justin Dewey was selected to be one of the judges at Lizzie's trial, of which there were three, in a seat he owed completely to her defense lawyer. Nowadays, that may be called a conflict of interest, but not in 1893. Apparently, when George Robinson met with Lizzie Borden for the first time, he took her by the arm and said, It's going to be all right, little girl. He immediately set to work on her image, as lawyers still do today for their defendants. Lizzie had never worn mourning black after the deaths of Abby and Andrew. Now, 
Robinson put her in black all the time, but it wasn't dowdy mourning that Lizzie wore. She wore black in the very latest styles and fashions of the time, and carried a long black fan to use to cover her face, or more often, to tuck under her chin as she listened attentively to testimony. Every morning, George Robinson told Lizzie, she would enter the courtroom escorted by one of two Fall River clergymen, like the good Christian woman she was. Despite all these encouraging plans from her defense team, the support of public opinion, and how well she was treated while in prison, all was not well with Lizzie Borden. Hannah Reagan, a matron at the jail, overheard a fight between Lizzie and her elder sister, Emma. According to Mrs. Reagan's sworn statement, quote, On August 24, 1892, Miss Emma Borden came to see her sister. I heard very loud talk, and I came to the door, and it was Miss Lizzie Borden. She was lying on her right side, and her sister was talking and bending over her, and Lizzie says, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? Emma says, No, Lizzie, I have not. You have, Lizzie says, and I will let you see I won't give in one inch. And Lizzie sat right up, and she put her up her finger, and I stood in the doorway, looking at both of them. Lizzie bored and lay down on the couch on her left side, and faced the window, and closed her eyes. And Miss Emma got a chair, and she sat down right beside her sister. Miss Lizzie didn't speak to her sister or turn her face to her, any more that forenoon. Emma Borden's vigil by her little sister was only interrupted by the arrival of the Borden family lawyer Andrew Jennings, who asked Emma, Have you told her all? And Emma Borden replied, Yes, all. This is one of the only records we have of a conversation between the two Borden sisters. This one snapshot tells us much about their relationship. After this outburst, the meaning of which neither of them ever told, Emma sat beside Lizzie in silence for almost two and a half hours, refusing to leave her little sister's side until one of her lawyers came to talk with her. Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? No, Lizzie, I have not. What exactly were they talking about? 
like so many aspects of this case, we will never know the answer. In a letter written to a friend on May 11, 1893, several weeks before her trial began, Lizzie Borden wrote, I see no ray of light among the gloom. I try to fill up the waiting time as well as I can, but every day is longer and longer. On May 31, 1893, Five days before Lizzie's trial was set to begin, there was another axe murder in Fall River. A dairy farmer named Stephen Manchester returned home to find his 22-year-old daughter, Bertha, lying on the kitchen floor. She had been hacked. To death. Dr. William Dolan, who had conducted the autopsies of Abby and Andrew Borden, also presided over the autopsy of Bertha Manchester. In his report, he stated there were, quote, 23 distinct and separate axe wounds on the back of the skull and its base strikingly similar to the injuries Abby Borden had received on August 4, 1892. But there were even more similarities to the Borden tragedy. The murder took place in the morning. There was nothing taken from the house, and there was evidence that the killer had spent a good deal of time inside the Manchester house, after murdering Bertha. Lizzie Borden was still locked away in jail, but an axe murderer had struck again. Everyone in Fall River wondered if this proved Lizzie was innocent of the murders she was about to be tried for. One of Lizzie's defense attorneys, Andrew Jennings, was positively gleeful at the news, stating to the press, Well, are they going to claim that Lizzie Borden did this, too? On Monday, June 5th, 1893, the trial of Lizzie Borden began. The first day was taken up by the selection of the jury, twelve men, all of whom were aware of the case and had followed it eagerly through the newspapers and local gossip, but in 1893 this was not a disqualification. The only thing jurors had to swear to is that they would not allow their previous knowledge and personal opinions of the case to outweigh the evidence they would be presented with in court. 
On the same day, the jury was selected and sequestered, June 5th, 1893. A Portuguese immigrant named Jose Correra was arrested for the murder of Bertha Manchester. Carrera had worked for Bertha's father, Stephen, and had argued with him about pay. He had gone to the Manchester house to kill Stephen, but murdered Bertha with an axe instead, and then waited in the house for Stephen to return. When he got tired of waiting, Jose Carrera left the house, not long before Stephen Manchester actually did return home. Could Carrera also have murdered Abby and Andrew Borden? The answer was no. Jose Carrera was not even in the country until April 1893. The twelve white men on the jury heard none of this. They were sequestered before these revelations came out in the papers, and so entered the trial with the thought in the back of their minds that the real murderer may have killed again in Fall River while Lizzie Borden sat in jail. On the second day, Tuesday, June 6, 1893, the trial really began. The clerk of the court read the charge to the jury, setting the stage for what some would call the trial of the century. Gentlemen of the jury, Hearken unto an indictment found against the prisoner at the bar by the grand inquest of this county, to each count of which indictment Lizzie Andrew Borden, the prisoner at the bar, has heretofore pleaded that she is not guilty, and for trial puts herself upon her country. Which country? You are. You are now sworn to try the issue. If she is guilty, you are to say so. If she is not guilty, you are to say so and no more. Good men and true, stand together and hearken to your evidence. Next, William H. Moody, attorney for the prosecution, began his case. Upon the fourth day of August of the last year, an old man and woman, husband and wife, each without a known enemy in the world, in their own home, Upon a frequented street in the most populous city of this county, under the light of day and in the midst of its activities, were, first, Abby Durfee Borden, 
and then after the interval of an hour, then Andrew Jackson Borden were killed by unlawful agency. Today, a woman of good position of hitherto unquestioned character, a member of a Christian church and active in its good works, the own daughter of one of the victims, is at the bar of this court, accused by the grand jury of these crimes. There is no language, gentlemen at my command, which can better measure the solemn importance of the inquiry with which you are about to begin than this simple statement of fact. For the sake of these crimes, and the sake of these accusations, Every man may well pause at the threshold of this trial and carefully search his understanding and conscience for any vestige of prejudgment and, finding it, cast it aside as an unclean thing. We shall prove that this prisoner Lizzie Andrew Borden made contradictory statements about her whereabouts and, above all, gave a statement vitally different upon the manner in which she discovered these homicides. Then we shall ask you to say, if you can, whether any reasonable hypothesis except that of the guilt of this prisoner can account for the sad occurrences which happened upon the morning of August 4th, 1892. Prosecutor William Moody also revealed to the court that he would be presenting into evidence the actual skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden, which had been removed from their bodies before burial in order to show how the broken-off hatchet head fit exactly into the wounds of their bones. Then the proceedings suddenly ground to a halt, Lizzie Borden had fainted. It isn't every day that you learn your father and stepmother were beheaded before burial, and that their defleshed, wounded skulls would be presented in court. I would have fainted too.
On the third day of the trial, Wednesday, June 7th, 1893, witnesses began to be called. Uncle John Morse took the stand. He described returning to 92 Second Street at lunchtime on August 4th and viewing the slaughtered body of his brother-in-law, Andrew Borden. Then Morse was asked by the prosecution to describe his journey up the front staircase after seeing Andrew's body, and John Morse said, I went far enough on the stairs so I could look under the bed where I had slept the night before, and I saw Mrs. Borden lying there with blood on her face. Morse was also asked if he knew how old the prisoner was. John Morse answered, Well, I think about thirty-three. After he said these words, Lizzie Borden vigorously shook her head no and smiled. She was still only thirty-two years old. The Baltimore Sun newspaper commented on this moment in their daily report, writing with delight and condescension, quote, Very much the woman. On the third day of the trial, Wednesday, June 7th, 1893, Bridget Sullivan took the stand. Victoria Lincoln, in her book A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, wrote of Bridget Sullivan's appearance in the courtroom that day. Bridget came in looking like a million dollars. She wore a stylish maroon-colored dress, a big matching hat with a big matching plume and kid gloves. While Bridget was on the stand, Lizzie showed no anxiety, only a lively interest and even a camaraderie. As Bridget detailed the Borden diet of warmed-over mutton, she laughed and Lizzie caught her eye and smiled with her. Bridget starts off extremely confident in her trial testimony, the polar opposite of the shy and frightened young woman she had been at the inquest months earlier. However, as the questioning moved to the events of the morning of August 4th, 1892, Bridget Sullivan's voice got quiet, so much so that the lawyers had to ask her to speak louder several times. She again repeated her testimony that Lizzie had laughed at her expletive from the top of the front staircase as she tried to open the locked front door for Andrew Borden after Abby Borden was already dead. But Bridget Sullivan now said she had not actually seen Lizzie on the stairs, she only heard her laugh, and Bridget had made an assumption on where Lizzie was standing at that moment. 
When Prosecutor William Moody asked Bridget if she had heard anything up in her third-floor bedroom around 11 o'clock a.m., Bridget said, No, sir. I don't remember to hear a sound of anybody. Prosecutor Moody asked, Did you hear any opening or closing of the screen door? Bridget's reply, No, sir. I did not. Are you able to hear the opening and closing of that screen door from your bedroom? Yes, sir. If anyone goes in or out or is careless and slams the door, I can hear it in my room. In other words, according to Bridget's testimony, no one entered or left the Borden house during the time that Andrew was murdered. However, when the questioning turned to Bridget's testimony at the inquest that there had been some bad feelings between Lizzie and her stepmother Abby, Bridget developed amnesia when answering defense lawyer George Robinson's questions. Robinson said, Did you answer to this question? Did you know of any trouble between Miss Lizzie and her mother, and say, No, sir, never a word in my presence? Bridget replied, No, sir, I never heard or saw any trouble with the family. Robinson asked, Will you say that you did not say that? No, sir. You won't say that you did not say it? No, sir. I won't say. Curious. Bridget also now could not remember what dress Lizzie had been wearing the morning of the murders, but she did remember what dress Lizzie had changed into that afternoon, as well as saying that she had not locked the screen door when previously she said she always did so out of habit. And when defense lawyer George Robinson asked Bridget if she had testified exactly as she did twice before, Bridget, sitting on the witness stand in her fine, expensive, newly acquired clothes, made a haunting and potentially revealing reply. I don't know what I have testified. I testified the truth as long as I can remember. As far as I know, I told the truth and nothing more. I have told all I know and all I can tell. On the fourth day of the trial, Thursday, June 8th, 1893, Dr. Seabury Bowen took the stand. Dr. Bowen became somewhat agitated when asked to describe the dress Lizzie Borden had been wearing on the morning of August 4th before she changed into the pink and white striped one everyone else could remember.
He would only say that it was drab, and he did not notice the color at all, saying to the amusement of the men in the courtroom, I did not pretend to describe a woman's dress, and I do not intend to now. Under defense lawyer George Robinson's questioning, Dr. Bowen also admitted that just prior to the funerals of Abby and Andrew, which was also the day Lizzie Borden was told by the mayor that she was a suspect, he had started injecting Lizzie with morphine, and that just prior to the inquest, Dr. Bowen had doubled the dose he was giving her. Robinson asked, does not morphine given in double doses to allay mm -hmm. mental distress and nervous excitement somewhat affect the memory and change and alter the view of things and give people hallucinations? Dr. Bowen answered, Yes. So just in case... Lizzie's confused and deeply contradictory inquest testimony was ruled to be admissible in this trial. Her defense, through Dr. Seabury Bowen's testimony, opened up a compelling reason why it should not be. Lizzie could have been so drugged on morphine that she may not have known what she was saying. After Dr. Bowen, Adelaide Churchill, the next-door neighbor who went over to the Borden house shortly after Bridget had left running for a doctor, testified next. Adelaide Churchill stated emphatically that she had seen no blood on Lizzie's dress, face, or hands, and that Lizzie's hair was not in disarray. Adelaide Churchill revealed one other bit of evidence that I've never seen remarked on before, but what could be very intriguing. Before Abby Borden's body was found, Adelaide Churchill testified that Bridget Sullivan had told her, quote, Mrs. Borden had a note to go see someone who was sick. She was dusting in the sitting room. She hurried off. She didn't tell me where she was going. She generally does. Again, this is Bridget Sullivan who said this to Mrs. Churchill, not Lizzie. Neither Bridget or Lizzie said anything like this during their own testimony, and it could suggest, perhaps, that Bridget was involved in some way, either during or after the fact. Only in Adelaide Churchill's testimony here was there ever any suggestion that Bridget had heard about the note from Abby Borden, and perhaps even saw her leave, when, of course, Abby Borden had gone upstairs to the guest room and never returned. Mrs. Churchill said that Bridget Sullivan said these words to her after Lizzie had mentioned the note, not before. 
I can't say what this may mean, but I do think there is something significant there. Then Alice Russell appeared on the witness stand. Lizzie Borden never stopped looking directly at Alice during her entire testimony, but Alice Russell never once met Lizzie's gaze. Alice Russell also had to be repeatedly reminded to speak louder, and she appeared to be very frightened as she recounted Lizzie's strange behavior the night before the murders, where she had spoken a feeling like something was going to happen, that someone was going to do something, that something was hanging over her that she could not shake off. However, Alice Russell also said she, too, could not remember anything about the look of the dress Lizzie had been wearing on the day of the murders, despite having spent hours by her side. But she did remember Lizzie's second dress, the pink and white one everyone else was also able to recall. Alice also testified again about witnessing Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove, although she said she had seen no actual paint or blood stains on the dress itself. Alice Russell also stated that she had trouble sleeping for weeks after the murders. The defense had entered into evidence a blue dress that Lizzie Borden said was the one she was wearing at the time of the murders, and it was noticeably bloodless. However, not a single witness who was presented with this dress at the trial ever could confirm or deny that it was the dress Lizzie had actually been wearing that day. No one could remember. Friday, June 9th, 1893, was the fifth day of the trial of Lizzie Borden. Prosecutor William Moody called Fall River Police Officer Philip Harrington to the witness stand. Harrington was one of the many policemen who had been in the Borden house following the murders, and his testimony revealed intriguing information that had never been spoken before. First, Officer Harrington described seeing the bloody body of Andrew Borden for the first time in vivid detail. Quote, the face was all cut and covered with blood, some of it very dark as though it was from the veins, and there was more of it very bright of an artery hue. It was quite fresh, and as I stood there, a small drop of blood trickled down his 
face. And then Officer Harrington viewed Abby Borden's body, saying, quote, I noticed that the head had been cut and there was blood around the floor, blood on the back of her dress. There was blood on the pillow sham next to her and some on the spread. It was quite dark. Officer Harrington spoke with Lizzie Borden and then went into the kitchen. The testimony that follows is so extraordinary and so overlooked that I will quote it in full. Defense lawyer George Robinson entered frequent objections to, to exclude this testimony, but he was always overruled, so it remains in the record. Questions by Prosecutor William Moody Answers by Officer Philip Harrington did anything occur with reference to the stove in the kitchen? Yes, sir. Just as I went past, I went to pass by Dr. Bowen, between him and the stove, I saw some scraps of note paper in his hand. I asked him what they were, referring to the piece of paper, and Dr. Bowen said, Oh, I guess it is nothing. So he started to arrange them so as to determine what was on them or to learn their contents. They were very small, and it was rather difficult, but on one piece, on the upper left-hand corner, was the word, Emma. It was written in lead pencil. Now then, what did you do with the paper? I asked Dr. Bowen again what they contained, and he said, Oh, I think it is nothing. It is something I think about my daughter going through somewhere. Dr. Bowen then turned slightly to his left and took the lid from the stove and threw the papers in, or the pieces in. Now then, did you observe anything as Dr. Bowen lifted the lid from the stove? Yes, sir. The fire was very near extinguished. On the small end, there was a small fire, which I judged was a coal fire. The embers were about dying. It was about as large as the palm of my hand. There had been some paper burned in there before, which was rolled up and still held a cylindrical form about twelve inches long. End quote. A missing note to Abby Borden that was never found, and perhaps never existed, although Lizzie herself said Abby had probably burned it. Andrew Borden
Returning home before he died were the roll of papers in his hand, as witnessed by Bridget Sullivan. A roll of papers burned in the kitchen stove, witnessed by Officer Harrington. And a will by Andrew Borden that was never found. A mysterious, ripped-up note containing the word Emma that family friend Dr. Seabury Bowen apparently found in the house and then burned on the day of the murders. The more you examine the facts of the Borden tragedy, as reported in the historical record and in the court transcripts of the trial and in the own words of those who lived through the horror of all of it, the mystery surrounding the strange case of Lizzie Borden does not become clearer as you might wish it would. Like spilled blood, this dark mystery only thickens with time. Lizzie Borden has been on trial for five days, and there is much more intrigue still to come. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 5. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as one dollar a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens. And you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now... <laughs>